0: Chapter Two of Our Mister Wren: The Romantic Adventures of a Gentleman by Sinclair Lewis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Don W. Jenkins. He walks with Miss Teresa. As he left the Souvenir Company building, after working late at taking inventory, and roamed down toward Fourteenth Street, Mr. Wren felt forlornly aimless. The worst of it all was that he could not go to the Nickelorean for moving pictures, not after having been cut by the ticket-taker. Then there before him was the glaring sign of the Nickelorion tempting him, a bill with Great train robbery film tonight made his heart thump like stair-climbing, and he dashed at the ticket booth with a nickel dawdily extended. He felt queer about the scalp as the cashier girl slid out a coupon. Why did she seem to be watching him so closely? As he dropped the ticket in the chopper he tried to glance away from the brass button man. For one nineteenth of a second he kept his head turned. It turned back of itself. He stared full at the man, half-bowed, and received a hearty, absent-minded nod, and a fine evening. He sang to himself a monotonous song of great joy. When he stumbled over the feet of a large German in getting to a seat, he apologized as though he were accustomed to laugh easily with many friends. The train-robbery film was, well, he kept repeating G to himself pantingly how the masked men did sneak simply sneak and sneak behind the bushes mr Wren shrank as one of them leered out of the picture at him how gallantly the train dashed toward the robbers to the spirit-stirring roll of the snare drum the rush from the bushes followed the battle with detectives concealed in the express car mr Wren was standing sturdily and shooting coolly with the slender hawk-faced pinkerton man in puttees with him he leaped to horse and followed the robbers through the forest. He stayed through the whole program twice to see the train robbery again. As he started to go out, he found the ticket-taker changing his long, light blue robe of state for a highly commonplace sack-coat without brass buttons. In his astonishment at seeing how a highness could be transformed into an everyday man, Mr. Wren stopped, and, having stopped, spoke. "Ah." Uh, THAT WAS QUITE A, QUITE A PICTURE, THAT TRAIN ROBBERY, WASN'T IT? YEAH, I GUESS. NOW WHERE'S THE DEVIL AND HIS WIFE FLEW AWAY TO WITH MY HAT? THEM GUYS IS ALWAYS SWIPING IT. PICTURE, MISTER? WHY, I DIDN'T SEE IT NO MORE'N, SAY, YOU PINK-EYE, SAY, YOU CRAB-FOOTED USHER, YOU swipe MY HAT, AIN'T HE THE CUT-UP, MISTER? AIN'T BOTH THEM USHERS THE JINGLING sheepheads THOUGH, BEING CUTE AND HIDING MY HAT IN THE BOX OFFICE? PICTURE? i don't get no chance to see any of em funny ain't it me barking for em like i was the grandmother of the guy that invented em and not knowing whether the train robbery now who stole my going-home shoes why i don't know whether the train did any robbing or not he slapped mr Wren on the back and the sales clerk's heart bounded in comradeship he was surprised into declaring say uh, i bowed to you the other night and you well honestly you acted like you never saw me well, well, now, and that's what happens to me for being the dad of five kids and a she girl and a tom cat. Sure, I couldn't have seen you, me. I was probably that busy with family cares. I was probably thinking, who was it et the lemon pie on me? Was it Pete or Johnny? And shall I lick 'em both together or just bite me wife? Mister Wren knew that the ticket taker had never, never really considered biting his wife. He knew his nod and grin and that's the idea were urbanely sophisticated he urged oh yes i'm sure you didn't intend to hand me the icy mitt say i'm thirsty come on over to moji's and i'll buy you a drink he was aghast at this abyss of money-spending into which he had leaped and the brass button man was suspiciously wondering what this person wanted of him but they crossed to the adjacent saloon a new york corner saloon which of course glittered with a large mirror heaped glasses, and a long shining foot-rail on which, in bravado, Mr. Wren placed his comfy best shoe. "'Uh,' said the bartender. "'Ry, Jimmy,' said the brass-button man. "'Uh,' said Mr. Wren in a frightened diminuendo, now that wealthy citizen, though he had become, he was in danger of exposure as a mollycoddle who couldn't choose his drink properly. Stomach been hurtin' me. I guess I'd better just take a lemonade.' you're the brother-in-law to a wise one commented the brass-button man me i ain't never got the sense to do the traffic cop on the booze the old woman she says to me maury she says if you was in heaven and there was a pail of beer on one side and a gold harp on the other she says and you was to have your pick which would you take and what do you think i answers her the beer says the bartender she had your number all right not on your tin type declared the ticket taker me i says to her me i'd pinch the harp and pawn it for ten growlers of dutch beer and some man-sized rum <laughs> he 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 grinned mr Wren. ha 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 grumbled the bartender well yawned the ticket-taker the old woman'll be CHASING me best pants around the flat if she don't have me to chase pretty soon guess i'd better beat it much obliged for the drink mr uh so long jimmy Mr. Wren set off for home in a high state of exhilaration, which, he noticed, exactly resembled driving an aeroplane, and went briskly up the steps of the Zapp's genteel but unexciting residence. He was much nearer to heaven than West Sixteenth Street appears to be to the outsider, for he was an explorer of the Arctic, a trusted man on the job, an associate of witty Bohemians, he was an army lieutenant who had with his friend the hawk-faced pinkerton man stood off bandits in an attack on a train he opened and closed the door gaily he was an apologetic little mr Wren. his landlady stood on the bottom step of the hall stairs in a bunchy mother hubbard groaning mr Wren, if you got to come in so late i wish you wouldn't just make all the noise you can i don't see why i should have to be kept awake all night I suppose it's the will of the Lord that whenever I go out to see Mrs. Muzzy and just drink a drop of coffee I must get insomnia, but I don't see why anybody that tries to be a gentleman should have to go and bang the door and just rack my nerves. He slunk upstairs behind Mrs. Zapp's lumbering gloom. There's something I wanted to tell you, Mrs. Zapp, something that's happened to me. That's why I was out celebrating last evening and got in so late. Mr. Wren was diffidently sitting in the basement. "'Yes?' dryly. "'I noticed you was out late, Mr. Wren. "'You see, Mrs. Zapp, I, uh, my father left me some land, and it's been sold for about one thousand plunks.' "'I'm awful glad, Mr. Wren," she said funereally. "'Maybe you'd like to take that hall-room beside yours now. The two rooms'd make a nice apartment.' She really said, "'nice apartment." you understand.' Why, I hadn't thought much about that yet. He felt guilty and was profusely cordial to Lee Theresa Zapp, the factory forewoman who had just thumped downstairs. Miss Theresa was a large young lady with a bust, much black hair and a handsome, disdainful, discontented face. She waited till he had finished greeting her, then sniffed, and at her mother she snarled Ma, they went and kept us late again tonight. I'm getting just about tired of having a bunch of Jews and Yankees think I'm a nigger. Ugh! I hate them!' Teresa, Miss Wrens just inherited two thousand dollars, "'and he's going to take that upper-hall room!' Mrs. Zapp beamed with maternal fondness at the timid lodger. But the gallant friend of Pinkerton's faced her for the first time. "'Waste his travel money?' he was inwardly exclaiming, as he said. "'But I thought you had someone in that room. I heard some.' "'That fella. Oh, he ain't going to be permanent. "'And he promised me. So you can have—' I'm awful sorry, Mrs. Zapp, but I'm afraid I can't take it. Fact is, I may go traveling for a while. Coase, you'll keep your room if you do, Mr. Rand. Why, I'm afraid I'll have to give it up, but, oh, I may not be going for a long, long while yet, and of course I'll be glad to come, I'll, I'll want to come back here when I get back to New York. I won't be gone for more than, oh, probably not more than a year, anyway, and, and I thought you said you was going to be permanent. Mrs. Zapp began quietly, prefatory to working herself up into hysterics. And here I've gone and had your room fixed up just for you, and new paper put in, and you've always been talking such a lot about how you wanted your furniture arranged, and I've gone and made all my plans. Mr. Wren had been a shyly paying guest of the Zapp's for four years. That famous new paper had been put up two years before, so he spluttered. Oh, I'm awfully sorry. I wish, uh, I don't— I'd thank you, Mr. Wren, if you could conveniently let me know before you go running off and leaving me with empty rooms with the landlord after the rent and me turning away people that'd pay more for the room, because I wanted to keep it for you, and people always coming to see you and making me answer the door and— Even the rooming-house worm was making small worm-like sounds that presaged turning. Lee Teresa snapped just in time. "'Oh, cut it out, Ma, will you?' She had been staring at the worm, for he had suddenly become interesting and adorable and incidentally an heir. "'I don't see why Mr. Wren ain't going to give us all the notice we can expect. He said he mightn't be going for a long time.' "'Oh,' grunted Mrs. Zapp, "'so my own flesh and blood is going to turn against me.' She rose. Her appearance of majesty was somewhat lessened by the creak of stays, but her instinct for unpleasantness was always good. She said nothing as she left them, and she plodded upstairs with a train of sighs. Mr. Wren looked as though sudden illness had overpowered him, but Teresa laughed and remarked, You don't want to let Ma get on her high horse, Mr. Wren. She's a bluff. With much billowing of the lower, less stiff part of her garments, she sailed through the cloudy mirror over the magazine-filled bookcase, and inspected her cap of false curls, with many prods of her large firm hands which flashed with Brazilian diamonds. Though he had heard the word puffs, he did not know that half her hair was false. He stared at it, though in disgrace he felt the honour of knowing so ample and rustling a woman as Miss Lee Teresa but say i wish i could have let her know i was going earlier miss zapp i didn't know it myself but it does seem like a mean trick i suppose i ought to pay her something extra why child you won't do anything of the sort ma hasn't got a bit of kick coming you've always been awful nice far as i can see she smiled lavishly i went for a walk to-night i wish all those men wouldn't stare at a girl so i'm sure i don't see why they should stare at me Mr. Wren nodded, but that didn't seem to be the right comment, so he shook his head, then looked frightfully embarrassed. "'I went by that Armenian restaurant you were telling me about, Mr. Wren. Sometime, I believe, I'll go dine there.' Again she paused. He said only, "'Yes, it is a nice place.' Remarking to herself that there was no question about it, after all, he WAS a little fool, Teresa continued the siege. "'Do you dine there often?' "'Oh, yes, it is a nice place.' Could a lady go there? Why, yes, I, yes, I should think so. He finished. Oh, I do get so awfully tired of the greasy stuff Ma and goaty fish up. They think a big stew that tastes like dishwater is a dinner. And if they do have anything I like, they keep on having the same thing every day till I throw it in the sink. I wish I could go to a restaurant once in a while for a change. But of course, I'd a knows it would be proper for a lady to go alone, even there what do you think? Oh, dear, she sat brooding sadly. He had an inspiration. Perhaps Miss Theresa could be persuaded to go out to dinner with him sometime. He begged. Gee, I wish you'd let me take you up there some evening, Miss Zapp. Now, didn't I tell you to call me Miss Teresa? Well, I suppose you just don't want to be friends with me. Nobody does. She brooded again. Oh, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Honest, I didn't. I've always thought you'd think I was fresh if I called you Miss Teresa, and so I... Why, I guess I could go up to the Armenian with you, perhaps. When would you like to go? You know, I've always got lots of dates, but I... mm, Let's see. I think I could go tomorrow evening. Let's do it. Shall I call for you, Miss... uh, Theresa? Yes, you may, if you'll be a good boy. Good night. She departed with an air of intimacy. Mr. Wren scuttled to the Nickelorean and admitted to the brass-button man that he was feeling pretty good's evening. He had never supposed that a handsome creature like Miss Theresa could ever endure such a slow fellow as himself. For about one minute he considered with a chill the question of whether she was agreeable because of his new wealth, but reproved the fiend who was making the suggestion, for had he not heard her mention with great scorn a second cousin who had married an old Yankee for his money? That just settled that, he assured himself, and scowled at a passing messenger boy for having thus hinted, but hastily grimaced as the youngster showed signs of loud displeasure. The Armenian restaurant is peculiar, for it has foreign food at low prices, and is below thirtieth Street, yet it has not become bohemian. Consequently, it has no bad music and no crowd of persons from Missouri whose women ask salvation for an evening by smoking cigarettes here prosperous oriental merchants of mild natures and bandit faces drink semi-liquid turkish coffee and discuss rugs and revolutions in fact the place seemed so unartificial that teresa facing mr wren was bored and the menu was foreign without being society viands it suggested rats tails and birds nests she was quite sure she would gladly have experimented with pate de foie gras or alligator pears but what social prestige was there to be gained at the factory by remarking that she always did like paklava mr Wren did not see that she was glancing about discontentedly for he was delightedly listening to a lanky young man at the next table who was remarking to his vis-à-vis a pale slithy lady in black with the lines of a torpedo-boat try some of the stuffed vine-leaves child of the angels and some wheat pilaf and some burma your wheat pilaf is a comfortable food and cheering to the stomach of man simply wonderful as for the burma he is a merry beast a brown rose of pastry with honey cunningly secreted between his petals and here waiter stuffed vine-leaves wheat pilaf burm twice on the order and hustle it when you get through listening to that man he talks like a bar of soap tell me what there is on this bill of fare that's safe to eat snorted teresa I thought he was real funny, insisted Mr. Wren. I'm sure you'll like shish-kebab and s- Shish-kebab? Who ever heard of such a thing? Haven't they any? Oh, I thought they'd have stuff they call Turkish Delight and things like that. Turkish Delights is cigarettes, I think. Well, I know it isn't, because I read about it in a story in a magazine, and they were eating it, on the terrace. What is that shish-kebab? Kebab? It's lamb roasted on skewers. I know you'll like it well i'm not going to trust any heathens to cook my meat i'll take some eggs and some of that what is it the idiot was talking about burma burma that's awful nice with honey and do try some of the stuffed peppers and rice all right said teresa gloomily somehow mr wren wasn't vastly transformed even by the possession of the two thousand dollars her mother had reported he was still funny and sort of scary, not like the overpowering southern gentleman she supposed she remembered. Also she was hungry. She listened with stolid glumness to Mr. Wren's observation that that was an awful big hat the lady with the funny guy had on. He was chilled into quietness till Papa Goroff, the owner of the restaurant, arrived from above stairs. Papa Goroff was a Russian Jew who had been a police spy in Poland and a hotel proprietor in Mogador where he called himself Turkish, and married a renegade Armenian. He had a nose like a sickle, and a neck like a blue-gum nigger. He hoped that the place would degenerate into a bohemian restaurant where liberal clergymen would think they were slumming, and barbers would think they were entering society, so he always wore a fez, and talked bad Arabic. He was local color, atmosphere, bohemian flavor. Mr. Wren murmured to Teresa, "'Say, do you see that man? He's Signor Guraff, the owner.' i've talked to him a lot of times ain't he great golly look at that beak of his don't he make you think of kiosks and hiram's and stuff gee what does he make you think he's got on a dirty collar that waiter's awful slow would you please be so kind and pour me another glass of water but when she reached the honeyed burma she grew tolerant toward mr wren she had two cups of cocoa and felt fat about the eyes and affectionate she had mentioned that there were good shows in town. Now she resumed. Have you been to the gold brick yet? No, I, uh, I don't go to the theatre much. Gwendolyn Muzzy was telling me that this was the funniest show she'd ever seen. Tells how two confidence men fooled one of those terrible little jay-towns. Shows all the funny people, you know, like they have in J towns I wish I could go to it, but of course I have to help out the folks at home, so, well, oh, dear. Say, I'd like to take you if I could. Let's go this evening, he quivered with the adventure of it. Why, I don't know. I didn't tell Ma I was going to be out. But, oh, I guess it would be all right if I was with you. Let's go right up and get some tickets. All right. Her assent was too eager, but she immediately corrected that error by yawning. I don't suppose I'd ought to go, but if you want to. They were a very lively couple as they walked up he trickled sympathy when she told of the selfishness of the factory girls under her and the meanness of the superintendent over her and he laughed several times as she remarked that the superintendent ought to be boiled alive and that's what all lobsters ought to be So she repeated the epigram with such increased jollity that they swung up to the theatre in a gale, and, once facing the ennui ticket-seller, he demanded dollar seats just as though he had not been doing sums all the way up to prove that seventy-five-cent seats were the best he could afford. The play was a glorification of Yankee smartness. Mr. Wren was disturbed by the fact that the swindler heroes robbed quite all the others, but he was stirred by the brisk romance of money-making. The swindlers were supermen, blonde beasts with card indices and options instead of clubs. Not that Mr. Wren made any observations regarding supermen, but when, by way of commercial genius, the swindler robbed a young night clerk, Mr. Wren whispered to Teresa, "Gee, he certainly does know how to jolly them, eh?" Huh? "Sh," said Teresa. Everyone made millions, victims and all, in the last act as a proof of the social value of being a live American businessman. As they oozed along with the departing audience, Mr. Wren gurgled. That makes me feel just like I'd been making a million dollars. Masterfully, he proposed. Say, let's go someplace and have something to eat. All right. Let's. I almost feel as if I could afford rector's after that play, but anyway, let's go to Allaire's. Though he was ashamed of himself for it afterward, he was almost haughty toward his waiter, and ordered Welsh rabbits and beer quite as though he usually breakfasted on them. He may even have strutted a little as he hailed a car with an imaginary walking-stick. His parting with Miss Teresa was intimate. He shook her hand warmly. As he undressed, he hoped that he had not been too abrupt with the waiter, poor cuss, but he lay awake to think of Theresa's hair and hand-clasp of polished desks and florid gentlemen who curtly summoned bank presidents and who had he tossed the bedclothes about in his struggle to get the word who had a punch he would do that great travelling of his in the land of big business the five thousand princes of new york to protect themselves against the four million ungrateful slaves had devised the sacred symbols of dress-coats large houses and automobiles as the outward and visible signs of the virtue of making money, to lure rebels into respectability and to teach them the social value of getting a dollar away from that inhuman, socially injurious fiend, some one else. That our Mr. Wren should dream for dreaming's sake was catastrophic. He might do things because he wanted to, not because they were fashionable whereupon police forces and the clergy would disband, Wall Street and Fifth Avenue would go thundering down. Hence for him were provided those YMCA night bookkeeping classes, administered by solemn earnest men of thirty for solemn credulous youths of twenty-nine. Those sermons on content, articles on building up the rundown store by live advertising, Kipling-esque stories about playing the game, and correspondence school advertisements that shrieked. Mount the ladder to thorough knowledge, the path to power, and to the fuller pay envelope. To all these Mr Wren had been indifferent, for they showed no imagination, but when he saw big business glorified by a humorous melodrama, then the job appeared to him as a picaresque adventure, and he was in peril of his imagination. The eight o'clock sun, which usually found a wildly shaving Mr Wren, discovered him dreaming that he was the manager of the souvenir company but that was a complete misunderstanding of the case the manager of the souvenir company was mr mortimer r gilfogle and he called mr in to acquaint him with that fact when the new magnate started his career in big business by arriving at the office one hour late what made it worse considered mr gilfogle was that this wren had a higher average of punctuality than anyone else in the office which proved that he knew better "'Worst of all, the Gilfogle family eggs had not been scrambled right at breakfast. They had been anemic. Mr. Gilfogle punched the buzzer and set his face toward the door with a scowl prepared. Mr. Wren seemed weary and not so intimidated as usual. "'Look here, Wren, you were just about two hours late this morning. What do you think this office is, a club or a reading-room for hoboes?' Ever occur to you, we'd like to have you favor us with a call now and then, so's we can learn how you're getting along at golf or whatever you're doing these days. There was a sample baby shoe office pincushion on the manager's desk. Mr. Wren eyed this and said nothing. The manager hear what I said, Do you think I'm talking to give my throat exercise? Mr. Wren was stubborn. I couldn't help it. Couldn't help, and you call that an explanation i know just exactly what you're thinking wren you're thinking that because i've let you have a lot of chances to really work into the business lately you're necessary to us and not simply an expense oh no mr gilfogle honest i didn't think well hang it man you want to think what do you suppose we pay you a salary for and just let me tell you wren right here and now that if you can't condescend to spare us some of your valuable time now and then we can good and plenty get along without you an old tale oft-told never believed but it interested mr wren just now i'm real glad you can get along without me i've just inherited a big wad of money i think i'll resign right now whether he or mr mortimer r gilfogle was the more aghast at hearing him bawl this no one knows the manager was so worried at the thought of breaking in a new man that his eyeglasses slipped off his poor perspiring nose HE BEGGED IN SUDDEN TONES OF OLD FRIENDSHIP. WHY, YOU CAN'T BE THINKING OF LEAVING US. WHY, WE EXPECT TO MAKE A BIG MAN OF YOU, Wren. I WAS JOKING ABOUT FIRING YOU. YOU OUGHT TO KNOW THAT, AFTER THE TALK WE HAD AT MOQUIN'S THE OTHER NIGHT. YOU CAN'T BE THINKING OF LEAVING US. THERE'S NO END OF POSSIBILITIES HERE. SORRY, SAID THE DOGGED SOLDIER OF DREAMS. WHY, WAILED THAT HURT AND ASTONISHED VICTIM OF INGRATITUDE, MR. GILFOGLE. "'I'll leave the middle of June. That's plenty of notice,' chirruped Mr. Wren. At five that evening Mr. Wren dashed up to the brass-button man at his station before the Nickelorean, crying, "'Say, you come from Ireland, don't you?' "'Now, what would you think? Me? Oh, no, I'm a Chinaman from Oskosh.' "'No, honest, straight, tell me. I've got a chance to travel. What do you think of that? Ain't it great? And I'm going right away. What I wanted to ask you was, what's the best place in Ireland to see?' donegal of course i was born there hauling from his pocket a pencil and a worn envelope mr wren joyously added the new point of interest to a list ranging from deloga bay to denver he skipped uptown looking at the stars he shouted as he saw the stacks of a big cunarder bulking up at the end of fourteenth street he stopped to chuckle over a lithograph of the parthenon at the window of a greek boot-black stand Stars, steamer, temples, all these were his. He owned them now. He was free. Lee Teresa sat waiting for him in the basement living room till 10.30 while he was flirting with train boards at the Grand Central. Then she went to bed, and, though he knew it not, that prince of wealthy suitors, Mr. Wren, had entirely lost the heart and hand of Miss Zapp of the FFV. He stood before the manager's godlike desk on June Fourteenth, 1910 sadly good-bye mr gilfogle leaving today i wish gee i wish i could tell you you know about how much i appreciate the manager moved a wire basket of carbon copies of letters from the left side of his desk to the right staring at them thoughtfully rearranged his pencils in a pile before his inkwell glanced at the point of an indelible pencil with a manner of startled examination tapped his desk blotter with his knuckles then raised his eyes he studied Mr. Wren, smiled, put on the look he used when inviting him out for a drink. Mr. Gilfogle was essentially an honest fellow, harshened by the job, a well-satisfied victim, with the imagination gone clean out of him, so that he took follow-up letters, and the celerity of office boys as the only serious things in the world. He was strong, alive, not at all a bad chap, merely efficient. "'Well, Wren, I suppose there's no use rubbing it in.' course you know what i think about the whole thing it strikes me you're a fool to leave a good job but after all that's your business not ours we like you and when you get tired of being just a bum why come back we'll always try to have a job open for you meanwhile i hope you'll have a mighty good time old man where are you going when do you start why first i'm going to just kind of wander around generally lots of things i'd like to do i think i'll get away real soon now Thank you awfully, Mr. Gilfogle, for keeping a place open for me. Course, I probably won't need it, but, gee, I sure do appreciate it. Say, I don't believe you're so plum crazy about leaving us after all, now that the cards are all dole out straight now, are you? Yes, sir, it does make me feel a little blue, been here so long, but it'll be awfully good to get out at sea. Yeah, I know, Wren. I'd like to go travelling myself. I suppose you fellows think I wouldn't care to go bumming around like you do, and never have to worry about how the firm's going to break even. But, well, good-bye, old man, and don't forget us. Drop me a line now and then, and let me know how you're getting along. Oh, say, if you happen to see any novelties that look good, let us hear about them. But drop me a line anyway. We'll always be glad to hear from you. Well, good-bye, and good luck. Sure, and drop me a line." In the corner which had been his home for eight years, Mr. Wren could not devise any new and yet more improved arrangement of the wire-baskets and clips and desk reminders, so he cleaned a pen, blew some grey eraser-dust from under his iron inkwell standard, and decided that his desk was in order, reflecting, he'd been here a long time, now he could never come back to it, no matter how much he wanted to. How good the manager had been to him! Gee, he hadn't appreciated how considerate Gil Fogle was! He started down the corridor on a round of farewells to the boys. Too bad he hadn't never got better acquainted with them, but it was too late now. Anyway, they were such fine jolly sports, they'd never miss a stupid guy like him. Just then he met them in the corridor, all of them except Gilfogle, headed by Rabin, the traveling salesman, and Charlie Carpenter, who was bearing a box of handkerchiefs with a large green and crimson paper label. "'Governor Wren,' orated Charlie, "'upon this suspicious occasion we have the pleasure of showing by this small token of our esteem our appreciation of your untiring efforts in the investigation of Mortimer R. goggle of the Graff Trust, and—' "'Say, old man, joking aside, we're mighty sorry you're going, and—' uh, "'Well, we'd like to give you something to show we're uh, mighty sorry you're going. We thought of a box of cigars, but you don't smoke much anyway.' these handkerchiefs will help to show the uh, three cheers for wren fellows afterward by his desk alone holding the box of handkerchiefs with the resplendent red and green label mr wren began to cry he was lying in bed at eight thirty on a morning of late june two weeks after leaving the souvenir company deliberately hunting over his pillow for cool spots very hot and restless in the legs and enormously depressed in the soul He would have got up, had there been anything to get up for. There was nothing, yet he felt uneasily guilty. For two weeks he had been afraid of losing by neglect the job he had already involuntarily given up. So there are men whom the fear of death has driven to suicide. Nearly every morning he had driven himself from bed, and had finished shaving before he was quite satisfied that he didn't have to get to the office on time. As he wandered about during the day, he remarked with frequency, I'm scared as teacher's pet playing hooky for the first time, like what we used to do in Parthenon. All proper persons were at work of a weekday afternoon. What then was he doing walking along the street, when all morality demanded his sitting at a desk at the souvenir company, being a little more careful to win the divine favor of Mortimer R. Gilfogle? He was sure that if he were already out on the great traveling he would be able to push the buzzer on himself and get up his nerve. But he did not know where to go. He had planned so many trips these years that now he couldn't keep any one of them finally decided on for more than an hour. It rather stretched his short arms to embrace at once a gay old dream of seeing Venice and the stern civic duty of hunting abominably dangerous beasts in the Guatemala bush. The expense bothered him, too. He had through many years so persistently saved money for the great travelling that he begrudged money for that travelling itself. Indeed, he planned to spend not more than three hundred dollars of the twelve hundred thirty-five dollars and eighty cents he had now accumulated on his first venture, during which he hoped to learn the trade of wandering. He was always influenced by a sentence he had read somewhere about, "'One of those globetrotters you meet carrying a monkey-wrench in Calcutta, then in raiment, and a monocle at the Athenium.' He would learn some Kiplingy trade that would teach him the use of astonishingly technical tools, also daring in the location of smugglers' haunts, copra islands, and whaling stations with curious names. He pictured himself shipping as third engineer at the Manahiki Islands, or engaged for taking moving pictures of an aeroplane flight in Algiers. He had to get away from Zappism. He had to be out on the Iron Seas, where the battleships and liners went by like a marching military band. BUT HE COULDN'T GET STARTED. ONCE BEYOND SANDY HOOK HE WOULD IMMEDIATELY KNOW ALL ABOUT ENGINES AND FIGHTING. IT WOULD HELP, HE WAS CERTAIN, TO BE SHANGHAIED. BUT NO MATTER HOW WISTFULLY, NO MATTER HOW LATE AT NIGHT HE TOMOROUSLY FORCED HIMSELF TO LOITER AMONG UNWASHED ENGLISH STOKERS ON WEST STREET, HE COULDN'T GET HIMSELF MOLESTED EXCEPT BY GLIB PERSONS WISHING TEN CENTS FOR A PLACE TO SLEEP. WHEN HE HAD DALLIED THROUGH BREAKFAST THAT PARTICULAR MORNING HE SAT ABOUT. Once he had pictured sitting about reading travel-books as a perfect occupation. But it concealed no exciting little surprises when he could be a Sunday loafer on any plain Monday. Furthermore, Goatee never made his bed until noon, and the grey-and-brown patched coverlet seemed to trail all about the disordered room. Midway in a paragraph he rose, through one hundred ways to see California, on the tumbled bed, and ran away from Our Mr. Wren but our mr wren pursued him along the wharves where the sun glared on oily water he had seen the wharves twelve times that fortnight in fact he even cried viciously that he had seen to blame much of the blame wharves early in the afternoon he went to a moving picture show but the first sight of the white giant figures bulking against the gray background was wearily unreal and when the inevitable large-eyed black-braided Indian maiden met the canonical cowpuncher he threshed about in his seat, was irritated by the nervous click of the machine and the hot stuffiness of the room, and ran away just at the exciting moment when the Indian chief dashed into camp and summoned his braves to the warpath. Perhaps he could hide from the thought at home. As he came into his room he stood at gaze like a kitten of good family beholding a mangy mongrel asleep in its pink basket. For on his bed was Mrs. Zapp, her rotund curves stretching behind her large flat feet, whose soles were toward him. She was noisily somnolent. Her stays creaked regularly as she breathed, except when she moved slightly and groaned. Guiltily he tiptoed downstairs and went snufflingly along the dusty, unvaried brick side streets, wondering where in all New York he could go. He read minutely a placard advertising an excursion to the Catskills to start that evening. For an exhilarated moment he resolved to go, but, oh, there was a lot of them rich society folks up there. He bought a morning American, and, sitting in Union Square, gravely studied the humorous drawings. He casually noticed the help-wanted advertisements they suggested an uninteresting idea that somehow he might find it economical to go venturing as a waiter or farmhand and so he came to the gate of paradise men wanted free passage on cattle boats to liverpool feeding cattle low fee easy work fast boats apply international and atlantic employment bureau greenwich street gee he cried I guess Providence has picked out my first hike for me. End of Chapter 2. Read by Don W. Jenkins. Rancho San Diego, California. com